Uh, today, as we, as we return to 1 Timothy chapter 1, um, we come to the first charge that Paul gives to Timothy as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Let's read it, beginning with verse 3. As I urged you... When I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Now, you will remember, um, if you've been with us, I, I believe this this book can be summed up in just two verses in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed coming back to you, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. This is, so this is like a manual. The Bible is God's manual on how to do life. First Timothy is like a manual on how to do church. Let's do church well. Let's do it in such a way that God can continue to have his hand on us. Uh, this is the church in Ephesus. And uh, while it was planted by Paul, Paul was a missionary to the world. And so his, mis- his ministry was to go to a place, preach the gospel, people get saved. Uh, they, uh, they form a little family together, or it becomes a church. Once the church is stable, he appoints a pastor, he moves on. That's what's happened here. He has left Timothy, his disciple, his spiritual son, if you will, as he refers to him uh, so often as the pastor of the church. Now, we don't know the exact size of the church of Ephesus, but as I've studied, it's a large church. It's, it's larger than Mill City Church, as, as I understand, um, but many believe it to be more of a network of churches. And by that, I mean um, there were a lot of smaller churches that made up the church in Ephesus. And that would make sense because in that day and time, they wouldn't have a big building like we have. Um, they would start somewhere. They would go somewhere where they could fit. But at some point, they would, they would expand. I mean, it's kind of like the old Bell Street Church. Some of you, anybody who's at Bell Street? It was a great time, wasn't it? It's a great season. But can you imagine if that was the best days of this church? Talking to Justin last Sunday night, we got in from out of town. We went out to, to dinner, and, and uh, I'm like, well, i got to drive you by this little church. And um, I was just talking about how we used to have to run the air conditioning in the wintertime because it was so packed in there and people sitting on the steps during second service, had three service. I mean, that, that, that was like an amazing time. And, and I look back on those days with, uh, and my heart just swells. Uh, it was, that was an amazing season. But then I said, can you imagine if that was the best that it ever was? Can you imagine if the best days of your life, the best spiritual 
season of your life was in your rearview mirror, Luis? Can you imagine? That would be terrible, wouldn't it? No, the, the Bible says we're to go from glory to glory to glory. And it's awesome to celebrate yesterday, but the rearview mirror is this big. The windshield is this big. I think there's a spiritual thought in that. So um, this church in Ephesus would probably have grown by multiplication. Um, Timothy would have been one of several pastors, but he would have been the lead pastor don't know all the details, but I'm just kind of throwing some ideas out there. We look at this passage here, and it um, makes me wonder, what was Timothy really facing here? Why this charge? And I felt in my heart that this can sound a lot like church today if we're not careful. Um, so with that perspective, let me read it with just a little bit different Emphasis. Notice the command to certain people is to not teach false doctrine any longer. Now, personally, I don't know that I've ever come across, at least not in the past seven years, of somebody coming to me trying to teach false doctrine. I'll give you two categories that, that come to mind would be pretty narrow or, or direct difference from the gospel. And and that would mean Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was important and was foundational, but not enough. In other words, you, have to, you need to add something to it. Communion, baptism, the filling of the Holy Spirit, serving, giving, um, membership, whatever that is, is like the human works that have to be put on top of the cross in order for it to really take, okay? Um, that's false. That's just not true. Let's just call that what it is, false doctrine. Uh, the other, of course, would be someone or something other than Jesus Christ being the way to eternal life. Now, that's false religion, okay? That's false religion. And there are many of them out there, and, and that's... Um, that may sound harsh, but I didn't write it. I'm just the mailman. Um, but he doesn't stop there. He says also there's some other people, uh, people who devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies because those things promote controversy, division. Uh, I call it sideways behavior. We're not moving forward, in other words. We're just duking it out amongst ourselves. We're not advancing God's work. And notice he, notice he points back to the gospel, which is by faith. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This not of ourselves. It is the work of God. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that none of us can own it. It's his salvation. The writer of Hebrews says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, the command is not to be mean. It's not to be a dictator. It's not to be a my way or the highway type of pastor. 
The goal of the command is love. You love people. The, the reason you don't allow this stuff is because you love the people that God has given you to shepherd, including those who are cracking skulls. I love you too much. You say it, still say it to Emily. <laughs> I love you too much to let you do that. That's a guilt trip. Man, it's, a, it's a zinger. You should use it, Robert. Use it every time. I love you too much to let you do that. What are you going to say to that? No, you don't. And where does that love come from? A pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. You got those three. And you see, Paul knows how difficult Timothy's job is. He knows the attacks that are coming. He knows the opposition that's going to be coming at him from within the church. People that should know better. And he's saying, Timothy, you need to guard your heart. Because the people that are going to come after you, that are going to be doing this, look at it. They've departed these things. They've walked away from this stuff. And they've turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law. But they don't even know what they're talking about. Or, or what they have so much confidence in talking about. So the condition of the heart is so very important. And these people have walked away from it. And they want to be seen as teachers. They want to be seen as leaders. And that's the point. They want to be seen as this. The problem is they don't even know what they're talking about. They're so far off the mark because all they really care about is being seen as And that's where I think the world has a legitimate position with the church and always has. I think that they've had a legit argument since well before the New Testament church even began because they see the church as pretty much we just want to be seen as. We're all jacked up on the inside, but on the outside, let me tell you how awesome I am. And so for the rest of the time today as opposed to teaching on false doctrine, I felt like the Lord would lead me to be teaching on what true doctrine is. Because if you know what the real thing is, then you know when the wrong thing is being taught. The word gospel is translated good news. It's good news. God is not a God who has come to condemn you. He has come to bring you good news. But the good news is only as good as the bad news. And let me give you an example. If, 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 I, if, if the bank were to call you today and say, you know, we have decided, because you're such a faithful customer, we have decided to forgive the rest of your mortgage. That'd be pretty sweet. Now, if you had been in Dave Ramsey's class and you had been diligent and, and, and you'd got the thing knocked down to $1,500, that would be good news. That would be great. 
uh, and you'd probably call home and say, I, you're not going to believe this, but this is what happened. Cancel your plans tonight. We're going to go out to dinner and go to a movie. And today's prices at the theater, you probably wipe out that $1,500. <laughs> but if that same banker called your next door neighbor and they didn't know $1,500, but they own, owed $300,000, that news is amazing. And all of a sudden, they're not just calling home, they're calling up and down the street. They're calling everybody on their phone. They're saying, this, let me tell you how awesome my bank is. I got to introduce you to my mortgage lender. I got to tell you all about this. Hey, we're not going to stop with going to Salt tonight. We're going on a Caribbean cruise, and I'm not going on a three-day cruise. We're going on a 14-day cruise to the Caribbean. It's going to be amazing. That's good news, isn't it? Well, Jesus had a moment like that. In Luke chapter 7, he tells a story, and this is not a parable. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus has been invited to the home of one of the teachers of the law. And, and outside of the tax collectors, the, the, the Pharisees and teachers of the law um, would have been the most wealthy people in town. And Jesus has been invited to their home. Jesus would go to anybody's home. Um, He's not opposed to rich people. He's not opposed to poor people. Uh, as one person put it, he just loves people. And so here's, here's Jesus in the home of this wealthy teacher of the law. And, and it says he's reclining at the table. And at one point when he's reclining at the table, this woman slips in. This is really hard for us to understand. I think we look at some of these passages and it's like, okay, how did this happen? Because they're, they're in this what they call a triclinium, which is a, a, a U-shaped table. Uh, they're laying on these couches. And if you've ever been here when I've taught on Judas, you, you've seen a personal illustration of it. And, and, um, and this woman comes in who, it, it's shocking that she ever even went into this house. But she goes up to Jesus and she begins to weep. And she is weeping so immensely that the tears are, are wetting Jesus' feet. And it's so wet that he, she uses her hair to, to wipe his feet. Now, let me just give you a... I mean, Take a moment to kind of consider that. There's no telling how many people are in this room. It's a totally different class of person that's walked into this person's house. And these Pharisees and teachers of the law, they're thinking to themselves, this guy is the Messiah? There's no way he's the Messiah. Because if he was really a prophet, he would know that this woman is a sinner. And then Jesus, because he knows their thoughts, don't think around Jesus. There will be a, a sermon illustration for you. But he gives this parable similar to what I just explained to you. He, he goes up to the host, this man named Simon, and he's knowing what Simon was thinking. He says, 
Let me tell you a story. There's these two men. And one man owns, owes the bank a year and a half wages. 500 denarii. A denarii is a, is a day's wages. This guy owes the bank a hundred, a year and a half of his paychecks. And then there's another person that owes a month and a half. And the banker decides in the goodness of his heart, he's going to wipe both of their slates clean. Which one is more grateful? And Simon says, well, of course, it's the one who owed the most. Of course. I mean, logic would lead you to, to believe that, right? And then he says, you see this woman, she knows how great her sin is. And you, you don't even think you're a sinner. Why doesn't he think he's a sinner? Well, to put it in today's words, probably because he thinks he's a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person. Here's the problem with that. The Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't say that sin makes you a bad person. Look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. It says, the wages of sin is death. In the previous chapter, chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, just as sin, sin has entered the world through one man, that's Adam, death through that sin, and in that way, death has come to all people because all have sinned. So what this means is, it's not that you're good or bad. It's not whether you're good or bad at all. It's about death and life. And this verse states that because of sin, we are dead spiritually. And we come out of the womb this way. It is handed down through our humanity, and as we come of age, it is confirmed and amened by our behavior. It's the way it is. That's what the Bible says. So the result is we are all spiritually dead. Now, if you've ever come across somebody and, and maybe you're new to this or maybe you, whatever, you, you're, you've heard this or you've had to have this conversation, you're with somebody and you're trying to explain the gospel, you know, well, Jesus was born of a virgin and, and he lived a perfect life. He, he gave up that life by uh, uh, sacrifice on, on the cross, and through that sacrifice, we have forgiveness of sin. He's raised from the dead, so we have eternal life. And that's kind of how that works. What do you think? And they say, well, I think, I'm, I think I'm a pretty good person. And And what's sad, let me just put it this, what's absolutely horrific, let me put it to, at that level, is that billions and billions of people are going to come to the end of their life and stand in front of Almighty God thinking they're a pretty good person. 
just like the Pharisees did. Just like these church leaders did in 1 Timothy in the church of Ephesus. And what they haven't had is the experience that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6. Maybe you're familiar with this, but if you're not, I want to I share what happened in, to Isaiah. Who's, this is the, the major of the major prophets in, in the Old Testament, this man Isaiah. He has a vision. It says, in the year King Uzziah died. It, Isaiah has this vision, and in an instant, he is transported spiritually to heaven, okay? And, and this, is, this is what he saw. He saw the Lord. He saw God. He saw God. He's high and exalted, and he's on a throne. He's on the throne. And, and, and the, the, the train of his robe, this massive temple, the throne room of heaven, the, the train of his robe is so massive that it fills the entire temple. Bam! And there are these, these seraphim that are, that are flying around, and, and he describes them, but there's really no words to describe them. So, so just like in Revelation, he's just trying to come up with some words to give us a glimpse. They had six wings, and they're flying around above the throne, above God, and, and one, with one set, they, they covered their eyes because they can't look at him, and with another set, they're, they're, they're covered their feet because they're filth. And the other one, the other two, they're flying around and they're crying, holy, holy, holy. And the other one's crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's what he's seen. And he's blown away. These words that we don't even use today. Holy, what is holy? Nothing. Filth. We don't understand this. We try to make God into who we think God's going to be. He's this white-haired, heavy-set fellow with a white robe sitting on clouds. That's God in the cartoon. That No, we're going to make God out to who we want him to be instead of realizing he's the reason everything is. He created it all. We're not created, uh, we don't create him in our image. He created us in his image. We don't make the rules. He makes the rules. But that's not what's happening up here. No, they're crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. Perfection, holiness, otherness. This thing is like Nothing that ever has been or ever will be. I don't have any other words than holy. And here's Isaiah. And then one of these seraphims goes and grabs a coal from the altar. Now, again, this is happening really fast. This is all of how many verses? Eight verses. And 
And let me tell you this. These seraphim, that's their only job. That's all they do. For all of eternity past and eternity future, their only job is to fly around the throne room of heaven crying, holy, holy, holy. They've never been to a men's rally. They've never been to a Packer game. And we get to their heaven and we see them and be like, man, you totally missed it. Lambeau Field, especially after they rebuilt it, man, that thing was amazing. You should have heard them singing, pass the barrel, roll the barrel, whatever they call it. They'd be like, that's fine. I've seen all I need to see. I didn't miss a thing. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could have some of that, Scott? Isaiah sees this. And the only response is, whoa. Oh, my goodness. I'm ruined. I got nothing. Whoa. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Whoa. is me. Because this man, this human being has seen the standard with which you and I, no human being could ever attain. It's a totally different level. My eyes have seen the king. And then this seraphim comes and grabs a coal with tongues and comes flying at Isaiah. Can you imagine what he's thinking at this point? I'm about to get incinerated. It's over. But instead, the Bible says, with it, with that coal, touched my lips. And he says this, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has been taken away and your sin has been forgiven. And then, I heard the voice of the Lord. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Holy, holy, holy. Saying, who shall I send? And 
notice it, it doesn't say where. It doesn't say with who. It doesn't say how long. It doesn't say how much it's going to cost. It just says, who should we send? And Isaiah says, send me. Hey, you got a plan or something? Send me. Hey, you got a job to do? Send me. Hey, you got something you want me to do? You got a plan there? You got something you want to do? Hey, send me, because I'm available. I'm available because one, my eyes have seen the king. I know that's amazing. Second, uh, I realize I got nothing. I, my, my sin has completely separated me from him. Woe is me. And third, I've just experienced God's grace, unconditional, perfect, undeserved grace, forgiveness, complete. Instead of being incinerated, my sin was completely taken away. I'm available. And here's the deal. If you've never had the woe is me, then John 3.16 is just a bumper sticker. It's just a yard sign. Some crazy clown-haired guy at a football stadium holding up a poster. It's fine. I mean, it's good. It's just not worth calling all your friends and taking your family on a Caribbean cruise. Because for you, you probably feel like you're a pretty good person. And I'll bet Isaiah thought he was a pretty good person until his eyes saw the king. And he said, whoa. People say I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I'm not that bad of a person. The Bible doesn't say that sin makes you bad. If it did, then you'd have something to kind of brag about. I'm a pretty good person. But the Bible doesn't say that sin makes you bad. The Bible says that sin makes you dead. And if you're dead, that's a problem. Tell me one thing you've ever seen a dead person do. My mom's hairdresser several years ago was talking about how she does hair for her clients after they're deceased. And somebody asked, was that hard? And she said, no, but they are. <laughs> they can't fix their hair. They can't dress themselves. They can't get themselves in the casket. They can't get themselves to the church. They can't get themselves in the ground. So if someone physically dead can do nothing about their physical condition, why would we think that in our spiritual death that we could do anything to improve 
our spiritual mission. When you're dead, you're dead. And I'm here to tell you about the gospel good news. When you realize how bad news is, that you're dead, and you don't get undead by being a member of a church, by being a member of a denomination, a Baptist, a Methodist, a Catholic, a Lutheran, this Lutheran or that Lutheran, or my mom was a prayer warrior, or my dad was a pastor, or I go to Mill City Church, or I have a Bible, or because you were born in the United States of America. You don't get undead by doing anything. You're just dead. Except something else has come from heaven. And it's not a flaming coal. It is the one and only Son of God who has come to this earth in human form who declares that anyone who believes in me can have, does have, will have eternal life. Your sins will be forgiven and your guilt will be taken away. That's what John 3.16 is all about. For God so loved the world. Not just the United States, not just Israel, not just the people that come to church, not just because you're born into something. No, no, God loves everyone. God loves the world that he gave his one and only son. So how do you get to eternal life? How do you get undead? How do you go from, from death to life? God. No, no, what do I got to do? No, 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 God. But what do I have to pay? No, 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 God. But what, what do I have to do? No, no, God did it. There's nothing you can do. It's God and God alone who gives us eternal life that who would ever believe in him, and I'm not talking about belief that the pack, you saw the Packers lose to the 49ers on, 40, on Friday night. I'm, I'm talking about belief. Belief, meaning I will stake my eternity on the finished work of Jesus Christ, that he was God, very God. He became human form. He lived a perfect life. He was alive so that he could become dead and then raised to life so that he could give me eternal life. That is believing in Jesus Christ. It's confident trust staking your eternity, that it was finished on the cross. That's what that means. And these aren't my words. There's not some banker up here trying to tell you what my interpretation is. This is, this is Jesus' words. And he's, he's talking to this guy, this other teacher of the law. who came to him at night and said, you know, I've been watching you. I've been watching this. I'm beginning to think, you, you're the guy. How do I get what you got? And Jesus says, well, you got to be born again. He's like, oh, well, I'm not, I guess I'm disqualified. No, he's like, no, not physical, spiritual. 
You need to be spiritually reborn. And he said, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that who would ever believe in him, put their confident trust in him, would not perish, but would have eternal life. This conversation that Jesus had with this guy, not on a mountainside, not in front of a big crowd, and wasn't a big to do, it was a private conversation with a guy who came to him privately because he didn't want his friends to know that he was becoming a believer. And these same words, and maybe, maybe that's you. You're like, okay, I've been around this, I've been in this, I've heard all about this. Just not convinced. I'm, I'm just trying to figure this out. And these same words 2,000 years ago are coming straight from Jesus to you today on August 14, 2022 in Reno, Wisconsin. And then he said this. And sadly, very few people can quote John 3, 17. Uh, it's really kind of funny, actually. It's sad, <laughs> but funny because it's super important. He said, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And that's probably where we see Timothy coming against people in the church. It's where this woman was in the Pharisee's house. So many people in the church and, and we just can't afford to be this way at Mill City Church. Oh, you, this, oh. You don't fit. Oh, you call yourself a Christian? Oh, no, you don't. You can't get in. Oh, you don't believe this? Oh, well, you can't. That's not going to work. Oh, you believe that? Oh, my goodness. That's where these people are. And all the time they think they're all good, condemning everybody else, not realizing that they're already condemned and so here's Jesus coming to this guy, Nicodemus, and to you, and to me. And he says, I didn't come into this world to condemn the world. You don't need me to do that. You did that. I did that. Now I came into the world to save. And so here's how this all kind of comes together. Because of the cross, 
we can go from woe, because God's not, God's plan is not that we stay woe. That's the start. We go from woe is me, and at the end of the story in Revelation, it becomes worship the king. Worship the king. In the Revelation chapter 4, we see the same scene, basically, that, that Isaiah sees in in Isaiah chapter 6, we got the, the four living creatures, six wings flying around, crying, holy, holy, holy. Then in Revelation chapter 5, you see the, the creatures again. Then we have the 24 elders and, and the angels that, that amount to thousands and thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands. And, and they encircled the throne, and they're all now crying, worthy is the lamb. And then in Revelation 7, it becomes you and me. In Revelation 7, John the Revelator, he looks at this and he says, there before me sat a multitude, a great multitude. No one could count it from every nation and every tribe and every people and every language. And they're standing before the throne and the lamb and they're crying out that salvation belongs to our God and who sits on the throne and unto the lamb. And so from this whole thing today, we go from woe is me, I've got nothing to worship the king. How in the world do we get there? That bridge is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the gateway that gives us the ability to go from woe to worship. Jesus did not leave the throne room of heaven to make bad people good. Jesus left heaven to bring dead people back to life. And he's the only one who can do it. So what's the deal about Mary being a virgin? That's part of the part of the story, isn't it? That's kind of weird. I mean, I mean, it's not kind of weird. It's really weird. There's no other. It's like the only thing out there that says that. What does that even mean? Mary and Joseph are engaged, and Mary's pregnant, and they're like, "Well, Joseph, what did you do? I didn't do it. it wasn't me." I have nothing to do with it. Liquor. There's actually a reason, super important reason. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus had to be born alive. That's why the Spirit of God had to be the one to put the seed in Mary's womb so that a living one could take on the condemnation of all the sin of humanity and pay the price.
So this message has been burned in my spirit, life-changing message burned in my spirit for the last several months. If you've been here on Wednesday night, you've heard little snips of it. And uh, a month, month from today, we will be seven years old. Seven years ago, we were um, do, getting ready to do some practice services. And, uh, and then for 15 years prior to that, Sandy and I in, in church, serving church, and getting condemned by the church, and sat in your chair time and time again, did your thing. And... Um, I watch this 25-year journey um, and I put this thing together just makes me wonder how many people are in church today and church macro church micro today you me how many people come in and out of church week by week, month by month, year by year involved and aren't truly saved? Just not truly saved. And I don't know exactly why this says I, I have a short list of potential reasons, but the truth is they're all over the church today. People that have just never gotten to the point of saying, you know, I get it. I get it. I get the bad news, and man, I got the good news. I'm not asking Jesus to make me a good person. I'm asking Jesus to bring me back to life. It's not my wife's decision. It's not my husband's decision. It's not my mom's decision. It is my decision. It is mine, mine all mine. It's me saying that I want to put my confident trust in Jesus Christ, and I want to know that I am saved and forever. I am full of the Spirit, and I am on a mission with my hand raised saying, here I am, send me. There is no church, now hear this out, there is no church, in the, certainly in the world today, that should ever have to wonder, where are we going to get volunteers? How in the world are we going to staff this children's program? How are we going to get people to greet people at the doors? How are we going to get the band full? No, there should be people lined up saying, hey, if I'm available. If you got something to do, I'm in for it. I'll be there early. I'll stay late. You want me to hold a door? I'll hold a door. What do you need me to do? Here's what I can do. Oh, you want me to do that? I'll do that too. Whatever that is, that's where the church of Jesus Christ should be. Why? Because that's what the Bible says we are. First Peter chapter 2 says we're a chosen people. We are a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We are God's special possession. Isn't that cool? And look, so that we may, look at it, we may. It's not we ought. It's not that you have to, but you may. We may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. We may. We may. Listen, you don't have to worship 
You don't have to get here early. You don't have to hold the door. You don't have to uh, read the word of God. You don't have to be here on Wednesday night. You don't have to serve the Lord by serving the church. You don't have to do any of those things, but you may. You may serve the Lord. You may come here early. You may even lift your hands. Guys, you may even open your mouth and worship God with all that you've got, making a joyful noise. You can do the right thing. You may do all of those things. You don't have to do any of them because it's all been done by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. But you may. You may. And so you get involved in a church like this, and you walk in here, and you're like, wow, I may. I may be a part of this amazing family because God has done great things in my life and I didn't have to do any of it. And so I'm just going to walk in here. I'm just going to figure out what I can do and and it's going to be amazing. Look, he goes on to say this. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. You see, there's a reason for it. You may, praise God. This almost puts it this way. When I was in the pit, he heard my cry. And he lifted me up out of the pit and out of the mud and out of the mire. He set my feet on solid ground. And then he put a new song in my heart. Isn't that cool? That's a picture, a word picture of salvation. Why may we do these things? Well, he tells us so that many will see what he has done in my life and say, oh my goodness, I never would have thought he. And then what does that equal? Then they will put their trust in the Lord. (laughs) Isn't that cool? I love that. There's a purpose for your life after salvation, after eternal life. God gets to use you as you serve him we may, and then others will see and they will put their confident trust in him. The bank, when they hire tellers and teach them about counterfeit money, they don't give them counterfeit money. They give them real money and they make them feel it, hold it, know it, so that when they see the funny money, they know it's funny money. When wolves come into this church, we got to know the real thing. And my prayer today has been that If there's people in this body, if there's people in this room today that would just, you know, would say, thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for explaining that to me. I understand now. 
I get the bad news. I get the good news. And you'd like to put your faith, your confident trust in Jesus Christ. Then I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. Whether you've been in the church for a long time or this is your first time, doesn't matter to me. Doesn't matter to the Lord. What matters to the Lord, to me, to us, is that today you could say, today is the day of salvation and now is the appointed time. And I'm just believing that there are people today that need to hear that and want to embrace that and accept that today. And so I'm just giving an opportunity. Is somebody here today? Is anybody here today? You just, I, I didn't know that. I, I, I know that now and I want, I want that right now. There's a better thing you could do on a Sunday afternoon in August than give your heart to the Lord. Awesome. Well, praise God. Isn't it good to know that our salvation has been secured? Can we pray for second service? I know there's somebody today that's going to cross over from death to life. And we have an opportunity to play a role in that by praying them into the kingdom today. Okay, would you, let's stand together and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I am thankful for your plan of salvation. I am thankful for the gospel. It is good news. God, we stand before you righteous in your sight because that's what your word says we are. You have bought and paid. God, I thank you for the woe is me moment recognizing I got nothing and for the opportunity to transcend to worshiping you. And I'm believing today that somebody next service, maybe it's just one, doesn't matter. Somebody, male, female, young, old, something's going to click today and they're going to transfer their death and receive eternal life. And God, I just pray right now that you would put a hedge of protection upon this church, that we would not be condemners. We don't have to condone sin. It's not about condoning sin. But nor are we going to condemn sinners because we are condemned ourselves, but for you. I just wonder right now, just in, the, in a moment between you and the Lord, if there's somebody in your life, I'm going to talk about somebody close to you, this isn't a judgment statement. This is a, a logic statement. You know that they are not saved. If there's somebody in your family, somebody that you work with, somebody that you're close with, a longtime friend, maybe it's your best friend, somebody, 
and you know, you just know it. And you're not trying, I'm not trying to put you in judgment seat. I'm just, use your brain. If you know somebody, I'm asking you to raise your hand right now. Now look around you. Okay, now let's pray for them. Dear Heavenly Father, in the coming days, in the coming weeks, we are going to cross paths with somebody that doesn't know you. And God, I pray you protect our mouth. You guard my mouth. You guard my heart. And uh, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus right now that you would even now begin to soften their heart, that their heart would become fertile ground, fertile soil, begin to loosen binds, begin to loosen chains for people that, that we know we love them, Lord. The last thing we want is for them to, to, to spend eternity to come to that place thinking they're a pretty good person when the truth is we are all condemned but for you and you have brought us back to life. Now, God, would you use our life as a, as a picture of you? And God, give us the right words at the right time. And God, hold our tongues at the wrong time. Help us, Lord, to be your ambassador, to bring them to a place, to help them to get to a place where they can recognize who you are so that their sins can be forgiven and their guilt taken away. And we ask this in Jesus' name.